is The Trip That Changed Me, a podcast about trips that transform. I'm Esme Benjamin, editor of Full-Time Travel. And every other Thursday, I'll be sitting down with entrepreneurs, writers, entertainers, and everyday adventurers to discuss a journey that shifted their mindset, ignited a new calling, expanded their heart, or ushered in a new chapter. My guest today may already be familiar to you as the warm and inclusive host of some of TV's most popular travel shows. Samantha Brown has been traveling the world professionally ever since landing her first job on the Travel Channel's Great Vacation Homes in 1999, a big break that almost didn't happen thanks to a late flight. She's visited 250 cities in 62 countries and clocked up more than 160 hours of programming, including for her own Emmy award-winning show, Samantha Brown's Places to Love on PBS. As you can imagine, Samantha's life has been full of meaningful trips, but it was a trip to China ahead of the Beijing Olympics in 2008 that altered her mindset as a traveler. In this episode, Samantha shares the story of how a brief encounter with two young girls helped her to understand that travel isn't about the must-sees, it's about the connections you make along the way. Well, Samantha, I'm so thrilled that you agreed to do this. I'm really excited to speak with you. Welcome. Thank you. Nice to be here. So I normally jump in with the question, where did your love of travel originate? My love of travel originated in the back of my parents' family's, you know, station wagon. They would load us in at three o'clock in the morning, me and my sisters and our dog and a, you know, big cooler full of bologna sandwiches. And we would set out uh, for a nine hour drive to Pennsylvania to stay with relatives and just sleep on their floor. But for me, that was, it was really humble beginnings, but I loved it. I loved the anticipation of it. I loved the journey. This was at the time where the station wagons, they had that back seat that faced out towards the cars that were coming from you. It's totally dangerous. It was like a 1970s kind of thing. But we loved it because we were separated from our parents and we had a little bit of a car autonomy. And uh, so that's where I got my love. I love just simple road trips. My brother and I also had one of those seats. We, I think it was yeah. an old Volvo. And so we used uh-huh. to just see who we could get to wave back. Again, very distracting. We just wave exactly. to drivers and be like, who will wave back at us? I know you originally wanted to be a Broadway performer. Where did that aspiration come from? I went to school for musical theater in college, and it really came from just a wonderful music teacher who I had from junior high, and then he transferred to the high school that I went to. So for eight years, I just had this, well, seven years. I had an amazing teacher who really saw a lot in me, and I did a lot of the, you know, the school plays, the school musicals, and just thought, okay, this is what I'd like to do for my life. And so I went to um, Syracuse University for musical theater. Yes, that is a major. <laughs> my parents' biggest big disappointment, but yes, you and you do take you know tap lessons as per class and you know that kind of stuff. But then I moved to New York City to pursue acting. So you're a good singer. I was a good singer, 12 years of voice lessons, but uh, no, age has made it so that it's a little more gravelly. But um, yeah, I was a, I, I could hold a tune, that's for sure. What's your karaoke go-to? Oh, Olivia Newton-John, uh, her whole repertoire from Grease to like Magic to, you know, Xanadu, everything she did. She's right in my range. I love that. But then obviously you transitioned into being a host somewhere along the way. Could you tell us about when that happened? When did you decide that, you know what, I want to pursue something different? 
I didn't actually. I it was just sort of out of necessity. It was an audition, and I auditioned for being a host. And I, I just thought, okay, well, you know, it'd be good. Because I, I was waiting on tables for eight years in New York City. You know, it's a tough, it's a tough thing to do. And so I got the job, and I thought, well, what what is a host? Because back twenty five years ago, hosts were just very presentational, and they only had one emotion. And I knew I wasn't that. But I thought, I still need to get on camera and have a reel to give to LA and sitcoms. And hopefully that could be my entryway in. So for me, it was it was a job that would hopefully lead me to another job still within acting. But I got the job. And what got me the job was my acting because I could improv. Um, I did a lot of improvisational classes. I was in an improvisational group. And the, you know, when you are a host, even today, the work is not scripted. It's unscripted work, but it is your job as the host to drive the action of the scene, to um, entertain, to impart information, to be concise while doing it, to incorporate the people who are a part of that scene, but then also to end it and cap that scene. And so those were skills that I learned absolutely in acting and improvisation. Oh, I've never thought of it that way, but you're so right. Interesting. So what was your first, the first show that you hosted? My first show was called Great Vacation Homes. And I went to stay with people. I didn't stay with them in their house, but I would visit people in their vacation homes, their second homes, and really explore how that home changed them as people. And I loved it to this day after 14 different series. That is still my favorite series because it had nothing to do with people being wealthy. A lot of the homes, of course, you have to have some form of wealth to have a second home, but it was by no means lifestyles of the rich and famous. It was really understanding teachers who had saved their money and they bought a little place in Cape Cod and visiting them and being a part of their life. And it was really this first entryway I had into just being someone else for a few days, which is what travel allows us to do and what this vacation home allowed the people who inhabit it to be. They It allowed you them to be someone different for just a few days and that would make their other lives easier. So we explored that within the show and it was, you know, very raw. It was, you know, nothing was polished. It was just like, let's, you know, roll the cameras and see what happens. And I still to this day love that show. It was just here in the United States, but it was called Great Vacation Homes. And then after that show aired and was very successful, the network understandably so said, well, no one can stay in those homes. <laughs> they were private homes. So let's do kind of that version, but in an area that people can enjoy and do the same thing I was doing. And so Great Vacation Homes became Great Hotels. Ah, Great Vacation Homes. It sounds like the concept is sort of similar to this series that I've been hoping to launch for full-time travel, the publication that I'm an editor of. And I want to just call it Happy Place or My Happy Place. Uh-huh. Because I think it's really interesting how everyone has one of those places that they are drawn back to again and again, and maybe they end up actually buying a home there because they're so drawn to it. And they feel like, as you said, they can become this other person and this person they really love embodying when they're there. Absolutely. Yeah, there's definitely more of an emotional value to a destination like that. And Mm -hmm. when you find those places and they're very rare, you're like, what is this? You become curious, don't you? Why do I feel this way here? 
and not where I'm from. How does that happen? So yeah, that's a, I would watch that series in a second. <laughs> and then after Great Hotels, we did, I did do a show, show called Great Weekends. And that's exactly what we did as May. It was just instead of going to Nashville, Tennessee and being like, okay, the things we do in Nashville, here's where I get my barbecue. This is where I'm going to listen to music. It was, who do I get to be in the two years, uh, two days that I'm there? So you know, everyone there is a songwriter or a country singer. So who do you got to talk to to get up on that stage there and sing? And what voice lessons do you take? And you have to wait on tables. to. And so we just did, you know, we incorporated that lifestyle within an itinerary that people could absolutely enjoy. They could still go to the restaurant. They could still go to the stage. But we put that sort of, you know, through line through it of that motivation of, well, what part of this travel touches you in a way that's more personal and just, I don't know, just more understanding parts of ourselves in, in a different human way. Mm, what a great concept. Yeah, Honestly, what a great job you have. Like it really is probably one of the most coveted jobs imaginable. <laughs> is it uh, truly as glamorous as it seems? Oh gosh, no, not, not <laughs> at all. Not at all. And I always say people are like, oh, I want your job, you know, and and like, why do you have your job? I'm like, because when people try out this job, they realize it's not all that it's But that's not to say it's not an amazing job, but there's just a tremendous amount of of work, long hours, long days, as you know, as you've just traveled today, you know, getting to a destination and having to be 100% energy the next day on camera. You know, I get I have to pronounce everything correctly. I have to know what the religious and cultural norms are and just kind of have my act together. But I'm just one small part of it. I work with a team of people and we all work very hard to make the show. But there's a lot of things that people I think don't realize that is happening because I'm shooting a travel show rather than you just being a traveler. We have to have permits. We can never just show someone on camera. We can't even catch someone walking by me for any length of time without going to say, hey, can we use your image and having them sign it? There are you know, noise issues. No matter where you are, there is a leaf blower uh, just really you know, upsetting everything. You know, batteries die. We're hungry. There's no water. There's all that kind of stuff. So yeah, there's a lot more to it. But is it worth it? Absolutely. The energy that you have to bring, I feel like that's where your background as a performer probably comes in handy because even if you are feeling so tired and kind of grumpy, you know how to act, right? You just act as if you're energized and and excited and then maybe, you know, your emotions follow suit. Mm I think the best thing I ever learned in acting towards my job was when you are an actor, you never put the motivation in yourself. Your motivation is always in the other person. It's always trying to affect the person you're in the scene with. Mm -hmm. That is your intention is to change that person to what you want them to do in the scene. And so um, that's what I take when I travel. If I'm feeling, oh, awful or just tired or I'm homesick, all I do is I put my energy in the other person and I, and now they're my co-star, I guess. And I receive so much energy from them that that's what I take. So for me, the show is never about me and how I'm feeling that day or what I think about a place. It's always, who's that person I get to know and let me feel their energy and kind of go through this through their eyes and their perspective. And that helps out tremendously. Uh, it really takes a lot of the weight off of your shoulders. Well, clearly you, you are an incredible host and you've hosted, is it nine travel shows now? More than that. 14. 14. Travel series. Yes. Oh my goodness. Yeah. 240 hours of travel television. Yeah. Yeah. A, That's a incredible. <laughs> yeah. So what are the 
besides the one you just mentioned, like what are the other qualities that you think make a really good host? Like why have you been so successful in your field? I think the, uh, the biggest thing is what you see not on camera, which is what I do behind the camera. And that is, I, I truly take it my role as a host, like the host of a party. If you were hosting a party, it's your job to make them, the people you're with, feel comfortable. So a huge part of what I do is actually, while the cameras are doing B-roll and picking up other shots, I'm talking to that person who's about to go on camera. And no amount of me saying, hey, just relax. It's fine. The cameras are rolling. We're going to have a conversation is going to make them relax. What is going to make them relax is to trust that I've got them. And that's what I say to them. I'm like, I, this is not about you. Um, I remember you, I used to say this in Paris all the time or France, where I knew that when I was going to ask them things, they were be, be, they'd be so beside themselves and not being able to speak English perfectly the way they speak French perfectly. And all I had to do was say, this is not about you not knowing English. This is about me not understanding French and how I get to find out. And that would just change it. So a lot of it is understanding what cultures are, where those, you know, vulnerable spots are for those people. And then being someone who they realize, oh, I can trust her. So that's what I'm doing behind the scenes um, is just making sure the person knows I've got you. You just get to be you and we love you. And this is your story. And we're just going to make you shine no matter what. We have a lot of cameras. We've got three cameras. We've got sound. We've got makeup. This is about you. We got this. You just be you. So a lot of that happens behind uh, before even we roll the camera. So it really comes down to emotional intelligence, like understanding where their vulnerabilities are and then helping them to calm those down, those doubts about themselves and be able to kind of perform under what is quite a pressurized situation for them if they're not familiar with being on camera. Yeah, absolutely. And I was just with a group of young women last week in Dover, New Hampshire, this tiny little town in the seacoast of New Hampshire. And they were three women all from the same part of China. And they were in their mid-20s. And during the pandemic, they were all waitresses or worked in, and they said, you know what, let's open up our own restaurant serving our food that we grew up in China and, and in Dover, New Hampshire. I mean, New Hampshire is about 98% white and like, 2% Asian. And so they opened up this restaurant. They had no idea what to do, but they had each other. They had never opened up a restaurant before. They had asked their mom for the recipes and they worked on the recipes over the pandemic. And we walked in and they were, the woman said she was, she's like, I'm going to throw up. I, I, oh, I'm gonna no. throw up. And I'm like, and I was, I was like, okay, I'm like, but I got you. What, let's just talk. And so, and this is something else. I work with the crew that I've worked with for 17 years. As I'm talking to the girl, I'm just kind of looking over at my cameraman and I just kind of give him these and he starts filming and she just is talking I'm like, tell me. And then after she was done, I'm like, you just did it. You're done. And she's like, what? I'm like, yeah. And then, and then she loved it. And then now we're back in and we're doing other things, but it's like, that's all it is. It's just being you. That's all we're here to do is to capture you. That's so smart. I wanted to ask you about family and travel. So mm -hmm. I'm a fairly new mom, had a baby ah. about 10 months ago. Yeah. Congratulations. <laughs> Thank it? you. And, and I'm trying to figure out how to balance the job that I really love that by design involves a lot of travel mm -hmm. with parenting and being there for my daughter. And like, how can I basically do it all? <laughs> yeah. So yeah. I'm curious to know in the early stages of motherhood, in your experience, how you balanced your ambition and your parenting? Oh boy, it's such, it's such a hard question. And it's really 
different for everyone. I would say that I knew very, really early on, I'm like, I want to get back in the workforce because it's something we both love, right? And parenting, you know nothing about and you feel like a total amateur. You're like, I want to go back to where I feel in control. So, you know, that career is pulling you because it's where you feel strongest, right? It's where you feel like, oh, okay, I press this button. I talk to this person. I am capable. And motherhood just makes you feel so vulnerable. And mm-hmm. so like, man, I am just failing every single day. It's going to change and it's going to get better. And the advice that I was given, and it's so true, is that you are going to feel like you are just going through the motions. You're just going through the motions of being a professional traveler. And this is me. And and even now you're probably exhausted. You've just got off of a long flight and you're just acclimated. But trust that you know what you're doing. You've worked so hard to get to this point that this right now is just what you know. And then you want to give your daughter as much as you can, everything she deserves, because that's the new relationship. I started traveling when my twins were two months, three months. And then I would say more extensively, like I had, like be gone for 10 days at a time when they were around eight or nine months. And th- that's th- those are tough times. But their father, that <laughs> I always tell remind people they have a father and the father needs to know how to be right there. And it's wonderful that they ha- are going to have a really great close relationship with the dad. I was very lucky to have parents on both sides come in. So there was tr- a tremendous amount of love. And that's all you want is that your daughter has love and that when you're gone, she feels love. It was tough for a little while. They would always be like, where are you going? But one thing I never did is I never apologized for my job to my kids. Mm -hmm. I just said, this is tough. I'm going to miss you too. But mommy has a really great job and she's worked really hard for this job. And you're going to work really hard for a job too. But I love what I do. I kept saying that. I love what I do. And you're going to come along with me. And so it was, you know, there's some tough patches. And now, as May, I'm going Sunday, I'm leaving for uh, 10, 12 days for, to go to Route 66 and then Jerusalem. And I, <laughs> my kids are like, so can we do it next week? I'm like, oh, oh I'm so sorry. Like, oh, next <laughs> week. I'm- Next week, I'm so I forgot to tell you. And they're like, oh, okay. And they're 10. So they get it, you know. And it, as long as your daughter knows she's loved by you and you're there when you are there, right? She, you're you're going to be fine. But I think the balance thing, I don't think that's even a goal because who knows what that is. And there are times where you're going to be, you know, be able to spend a lot of time with her and then other times when you're not. And so you just want to make sure that the times you are with her and your times with your job that you're just giving it your all where you mm-hmm. are. That's that's all. That's the only advice advice I have because it is hard, and I'm figuring it out every day too. That's good advice. Do your daughters think your job is super cool and like mom is super cool, or does it just seem commonplace and boring to them? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I don't think they think what I do is that cool. Yeah, you know, as soon as they get to go to Japan, they'll probably think I'm really cool. Like, but uh, yeah, no, I don't think they really get it now. It's interesting now. People, like, well, people will come up to me. And be like, I love your show. And that's and I'm, and I'll be like, boom. I'm like, see, like your mom has done some really cool things. So yeah, no, I'm just mom to them. <laughs> and obviously you've had the opportunity throughout your career to visit hundreds of cities. Mm-hmm. I don't even know how many. I had like, I'm sure these stats are completely wrong. 250 cities in 62 countries. That's probably right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But anyway, a lot. (laughs) We get the picture. But there was one trip in particular to China that had a profound impact on you. So first, let's talk about the purpose of that trip. What were you shooting? 
We were there shooting three different one-hour specials all around China in 2007 because 2008 was the Olympics. And it was really considered in 2008 the big, you know, coming out party of China. And so we were doing three episodes, one in Beijing, one in Xi'an, and one in uh, Chengdu. I still remember the opening ceremony from that Olympics. It was stunning. (laughs) No, no one's come close, right? Yeah, Um, didn't even look real. You fell in love with Beijing. What was so beguiling about the city for you? I, you know, I love, I love China because you are just so out of your norm. And I won't even say it's a comfort zone. It's just everything is turned upside down and it immediately makes you this like six-year-old just trying to be, figure things out. I really felt more like a child than I have ever felt since childhood while I was in China because everything was unbelievable. Everything was fascinating. Uh, So I loved that feeling. And I really enjoyed the people of China too. I got along with them, even without, uh, you know, um, know, with a severe language barrier, there's a lot of mutual reciprocity of interest of one another. So every time we go to shoot, and I hope we'll be back soon, we have an amazing time, not only understanding the history of the place, the everyday lives of the people who live there, but the people themselves, we have always really hit it off with well. Whenever you go somewhere like that, where the culture is just so different, I think it's interesting because it makes you start to question the way that you do things in your Mm -hmm. culture and the things that you take for granted, the unwritten rules and the etiquette that's just in the ether. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And you start to be like, is that normal? Is what does normal even mean? You know, it's so interesting how it makes you like see your own culture differently. So true. So true. <laughs> I know your shoots can be pretty grueling, like 14, 16 hour days. Are there ever points when, or specifically on that China trip, were there ever points when you were like, I just had enough of this and I just, I missed my bed. Like I just, I just, I'm having a tough time. Oh, yeah. Yeah. There are many days because you you are so far away from home. And maybe this is something that travelers don't speak enough about. But every traveler I've ever talked to, there's just that moment where you're like, oh, my gosh, you know, you're just you miss home. You miss things being familiar. You got to start the engines again every single morning, it feels like. Um, but yeah, definitely in in China, I was there. I was away from home for like 32 days. So homesickness started to set in big time there. Absolutely. I kind of think that we block out those moments when we get home. Like Mm -hmm. you almost forget the times when it's been tough and you only remember the fun parts. Yeah. Well, that's why we have children, right? (laughs) There wouldn't be children in this world if we remembered how tough bearing children and, you know, raising younger children are. And all of a sudden, three years go by or two years, you're like, let's have another one. What, what? (laughs) <laughs> what could go wrong? No, it's true. You you do remember the really good parts. But what I always loved about these moments where I felt like I just don't want to be here anymore is they were always this, I don't know, gateway to this bigger moment that only because I was vulnerable and feeling a little raw in my just, you know, just a little more open, I, I had that moment that I might have not had, had I been protective and had my armor on and had my energy up. So whenever I felt like, oh man, I just don't feel good. All right, yeah, not feel good, like sick wise, but just like not mentally, you know, where I want to be. I always knew, hmm, I wonder what's going to happen today. Could be good. That's a great mindset to have. And I know on one particularly tough day, you walked to a local park and you met two 10-year-old girls on roller skates. Tell us about your interaction and why it was so meaningful. 
oh, well, this story is like my story. It's like if I was a fisherman, this would be my big fish story because it really changed me as a traveler in that instant. And we had been shooting in China for, I don't know, uh, 30 days. I had lost count. And um, I was just done. Again, long days of shooting, getting onto a bus, going to like another top you know, largest in the world can be seen from space icon that is China. And you're just so overwhelmed. So we had stopped to have dinner and we stopped at this kind of place. I didn't know we were just going from the Abuda back to Chengdu, the city. And it was like a two hour drive. And so my crew, which was like 20 people, went in to have dinner. And I was like, you know what? I'm just I've actually lost my appetite. I just want to break. I just want to be alone. And so I was standing there and I saw that like a block away was this area of light. So I'm like, I'm just going to go for a walk and walk there. So I get there and we're in this area that's really more industrial. Like I don't even see where apartments are. So to see people here was really, really like discombobulating. I didn't know where these people were coming from. And then I enter the picture and they're like, where are you from? Where did you come from? But they all greeted me with smiles. And so I just knew I was in a a nice place. There were young people walking their dog and having fun children. And there were older ladies doing their exercises. It was just an area where life, everyday life was happening. And so that's when I sat down. And that's when these two little girls on roller skates, roller skated over to me. And and they started speaking Chinese. And I was like, ah, I don't, I don't know Chinese and just kind of gestured. No, I, and they kind of looked at each other and then they, you know, and then they roller skated away, but then they came back and they said, name. And I said, oh, name, um, Sam. And then I name, I pointed to them and they told me their names and, and they laughed and, and they roller skated away. And then they came back from I'm like, ah, I'm like, I'm from uh, the United States. I said, but I love China. And they laughed and they wrote and they, you know, they this continued back and forth for a little while. You know, obviously there's someone in the distance who's like, well, she's probably from the West. She probably speaks English. This is how you be polite. This is what you ask. And so they have, you know, their person behind the, you know, pay no attention to the man behind the curtain. But and so but then I realized I've been gone for like, I don't know, half an hour at least. My producers have no idea where I've walked to and that I needed to get back. And so I started walking back and I'm about to just cross the street and leave this beautiful area of light and energy. And I hear my name being called and I hear Sam, Sam. And I look and it's the two little girls and they're just roller skating as fast as they can and pumping their little legs and their arms. And they get kind of to the middle of the uh, the park. And the one raises her hand and she shouts, my friend. And at that moment, I just dissolved. You know that that scene in Amelie where she just turns to water and she kind of, that's how I felt. Just like all of the negativity I had been feeling, all of that exhaustion that I had been feeling just left my body so quickly. And I started to shake. And I was shaking because, I, you know, as only later did I realize, you know, you had spent a month trying to understand China, you know, going to all of its 5,000 year places, the Great Wall, you know, maybe the Forbidden Palace. And but nothing made me feel like I have been to China than two little girls who just went out of their way to to learn how to say my friend. And so from then on, I really approach travel very differently. It's very rarely in the must-sees. I get them. They're important. But I always try to find and leave room, more importantly, for those moments where something like this can happen. And I think that's something that in travel, 
it's hard to show in a TV show because we've got time, right? This is valuable time. I'm just going to keep showing it. I'm not just going to show you, show me walking around trying to think what's going to happen next. But this is what I try to implore to people when they travel is leave room, leave room for spontaneity and for meeting people and talking to strangers, make room for that in your schedule because it will change your life. And I've, I've never approached travel any other way since. Mm-hmm. So many people I have on this podcast talk about solo trips as being really meaningful for them. And I think a big part of that is that you do have to, you know, go out on a limb and speak to strangers a bit more, potentially, if you want to have a good time. <laughs> but I think a lot of people are afraid of that. You know, they maybe aren't so confident. So mm-hmm. using your emotional intelligence, <laughs> do you have any tips for how to, you know, make a fast connection with somebody that you don't know and you've just met? Oh, sure. Um, One thing that I like to do is I think if people feel uncomfortable doing that, one thing you can do is what I call create a ritual. So wherever I travel, if I'm in a place for more than, say, three days, I go back to the same coffee shop every morning to have the cup of coffee. I create a ritual. And or maybe it's, you know, a a park bench that you sit at to read your stories or go over your your emails. But it's always the same time, same place every single day. And I think in creating that ritual, you are creating a comfort and that comfort becomes a constant and that constant makes you more confident. And if you're looking for confidence, then that's where that comes from. Just kind of knowing I know this place that barista has seen me every single day. I've seen some of these people are okay. And that's when you kind of just open up naturally and start talking to the person next to you. Oh, that's a good book you're reading. Hey, I was wondering, you know, I'm here right now and I'm thinking about lunch. There's three places that were recommended to me. What would you recommend? Any local would love to give you their feelings of, you know, where you should eat, where you should go. And so I always love that because people want to help you more than you know. Absolutely. And if we don't speak the same language, I never assume people speak English. I think, uh, do you speak English is not the way to enter into any conversation. Uh, a better way to do that is to say, ah, you know, no English, Espanol, uh, you know, Francais, uh, Anglais. And what you're saying is, I, I recognize I'm in your country, but I don't speak your language. Do you possibly speak mine? Mm-hmm. Instead of just saying, do you speak English? Because that can be either seen as a challenge or a put down, right? So you kind of want people to be on your side. And so that's how I would always do it. And I mean, I live in New York City, which is considered one of the most unfriendly cities in the world. And everyone is wrong when they say that. And you might feel the same way too. Of course, there's some like, you know, people with, you know, uh, uh, attitudes, but you know who those are. You're getting those feelings. But so I just feel like people are kinder than we give people credit for. and But there are ways to open yourself up to feel more confident. So for me, that's create a ritual and, you know, go from there. I love that. What a smart thing to say. I think you're right about the tendency of many people, if they don't speak the language, to just go straight to do you speak English? <laughs> and I never, I never really thought about how that could be seen as offensive, but of course yeah. it could. Yes. Yeah, it is. It's, I think, and I felt it. I felt where I was wrong many, many times. And I realized, <laughs> and it's interesting now, you know, 20 years later, every almost everyone does speak English. So um, you certainly don't want to offend people, but like, do you speak English? You know, it's, it's just be like, you know, hey, you know, no Francais, Anglais, and like they get it. But you are recognizing and it's that recognition that you're not in an English speaking country. Um, mm-hmm. So you, know, you, you, tr- you just try, you just try to be a kind, polite person. And I would say nine times out of 10. People just are, are more than uh, willing to help and to talk and to give you their their point of view. 
And I know those little girls weren't the only meaningful interactions you had while you were in China. 50% of your crew were Chinese. Mm -hmm. Tell me about how your relationship with them blossomed over the course of the shoot. Oh, so much so. It's interesting. And every time I think I've shot in China, oh, maybe four or five different times. And it's always the same thing. We all meet and there's a lot, you know, there's just this, it's not tension. It's just this formality. And people in China are much more formal than people in America, than Americans are. And so there's this formality there. But I would say after one or two days, maybe two days, that formality comes down and now we're friends. And now it's like you're best friends. And it's just this, this like we are in this together. I mean, I, we've every time we're in China, we have a government, not every time, actually, not anymore. That's interesting. Our first time I was there for a month, we had two like government aides from China who just listened to everything I was saying to make sure everything I was saying was okay. You know, and they had these little black bags. And so we just thought, oh, they're we're going to be, you know, um, but no, they were on our side. If anyone demanded permits and then we had the permit and that person said no, they would be fighting for us. And uh, no, so we got along. But there was one thing that I did to break the ice and it was brilliant. And I always recommend it to people. I always would travel with peanut butter on these big trips because Peanut butter for me is my survival food, right? You can find anything to go with peanut butter. And if you're really desperate, you can just stick your finger in and eat peanut butter. But I'm arriving in places really late at night. Maybe there's no room service. I don't want to go outside while when I don't really know the area quite yet. So peanut butter was many things for me. And so in many countries, as I found out, the, they don't have peanut butter. Peanut butter is an American product. And it might be more prevalent now, but back then it, it wasn't. And so I would make everyone peanut butter and jelly sandwiches. And because jelly, you could find everywhere. And I'd stack them up and I'd put them back into the bread package, just like my mom did when we would go on our long road trips. And I did this in China. And so I gave everyone a, a, a peanut butter and jelly sandwich and I introduced it in a formal way. I said, this is a very important sandwich in my country. When an American is born, one of the first things we eat is a peanut butter and jelly sandwich. And we eat peanut butter and jelly sandwiches our entire lives until we can eat no more, please. And at first they think it's disgusting, right? They do not like the idea of peanut butter, but I hate, had to eat duck tongue. So I was like, you know what? <laughs> now it's your turn. And so <laughs> they eat it and they love it because it's, it's a great sandwich. It's an iconic sandwich. And now we're laughing and now they're showing me when we were going to stores, you know, certain food products that they grew up with that they want me to try. And now we've sort of broken that, you know, we've, broken bread. We've broken bread with peanut butter and jelly on it. So um, yeah, there was always really, really wonderful. We were always, always really interested in one another. And since then, you've gone on to launch your own travel show. What lessons from that trip to China did you bring into creating the Emmy award-winning Samantha Brown's Places to Love? Oh boy. I, it was really to really approach, you know, we have Beijing and Xi'an and we have these far-flung places, but really we could approach any destination in the United States with that same sense of curiosity, of awe, because there are so many cultures among us and so many people working so hard to create the experiences that we as travelers just get to have. So Places to Love is really from the more from the point of view of the local that you are going to meet as a traveler and their effort to create that experience. And so not only do you have the experience, but you understand what went into uh, creating it. And I feel like when we understand that, 
we become less like anonymous consumers and more a part of a community. And we're hearing that a lot now, like especially after the pandemic, how does travel either really alienate a community, you know, put it on the side, the traveler is more expe- more important than the actual local, you know, but when the intersection of these two, you know, the locals and who they are with the traveler and what our needs are connect, it's a really powerful experience. So it's really uh, about, and it's funny, I call it places to love, but it's really about people, but I can't call it people to love. No one would think that was a travel show. But yeah, we really, we really go into a more personal feeling of a really great example of this is I went to Xi'an twice, once with the travel channel and once with places to love. And the first time you go to Xi'an, we have to do the terracotta warriors. It's unbelievable. And so we just basically shot the terracotta warriors and what they are. You know, I did stand ups and this is the terracotta warriors. They were found 6,000 years ago. They are uncovered, blah, 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 blah. And now 10 years later with my own show, I still want to go back to the terracotta warriors, but I wanted to find that emotional value of why this is important beyond just what happened in the past. What does it mean for the people now in the moment? And so we found um, one of the doctors who goes down into those pits and sits there with a tiny brush and slowly, you know, we'll start to see an eye staring back or a little knuckle from a hand. And then he knows what he has. And he spends painstakingly amounts of time trying to uncover that. And so it was interesting talking to him. It was all, you know, through interpreter. But I, I asked him, what does it mean when you see that eye staring back at you? What do you feel? And he waited for a moment. And then he said, I start to have a conversation with him. And I start to say, welcome back. My name is, and we've been waiting for you. And he has this whole conversation with each terracotta soldier. And I just thought, oh, that's that's it. You know, that's so, you know, of course, it's an important part of history. But what does it mean to the people now? And how do they interact with something that is like so, I mean, especially for an American, like, you know, we don't have anything that old. That's not just still rock and forests and that sort of thing. But um, so that's that's the difference. It's what's the emotional value of the local living there that they can pass on to the traveler. And now we have greater respect for them, for where we are. And we are just more a part of that community helping making it to make it stronger, not just depleting from it. That makes sense because I was reading about how your goal is to take viewers on a discovery of the emotional heart of travel, which mm-hmm. it seems like this is how you're doing it. Yes, yes. That's <laughs> not, yeah, it, it's funny when you read that. It's just, it, what does that even mean? Yeah. Part of travel? What is this, a Hallmark card? It's like, no, but you're right. It's, it's, it's very specific though, and it gets deeper than just that. So, yeah. And you were also producer of the series. How did you decide on the different destinations that you wanted to feature? Because obviously you've been to so many different places and I'm sure you've had connections in lots of different um, destinations. So I'm curious to know how you whittled it down. Yeah, I mean, we start with uh, a budget. That's the biggest answer to that question. And we see where we can go and how far we can go with that budget, just like anyone you know, planning any sort of vacation. Part of that is also understanding how easy is it going to be to be there and to get there, especially to get there. We have 26 cases of professional gear. That's not including our luggage. And so direct flights are just what we need. If I was the Discovery Channel or it was someone with gobs of money, we could take more chances. We could go further. We could take more connecting flights. We could rent flights. We could charter flights. But I don't have that kind of money. So when we leave for a place, 
we all have to end up there the next day or that day. And then we start shooting the next day. And there's very little room for that. So that's a massive logistic that really, okay, well, we're coming from, you know, we're going to be shooting in British Columbia. Can we get to Chicago? Is that a direct flight? No, it's not. Okay, well, let's see. What is a direct flight? Okay, that city. Okay, we and then we just start from there where we can go. So a lot plays into it. Weather is huge. But yeah, it's it's kind of all over the place. But budget is the biggest determiner of where we go. And how much planning are you able to do in terms of the content of the show? And how much is down to serendipity? You know, what comes out during the conversations, like the guy with the terracotta warriors? You know, what do you, where does the magic come from? How does it all come together? Oh, great question. A, a lot of it is planned out. I would say 90% of it is planned out. We actually have a pre-pro as well. So my husband, who owns the company with me, either him or my director, uh, Sylvia Kaminer, goes to these places uh, like a month ahead of time, and they scout everything. So if we have eight or nine scenes to fill, they see 15 to 20 different ideas. Uh, and they're meeting people, they're seeing the space, they're seeing, can we get our crew in? Can we do that hike? I don't know. That's a really difficult hike to that waterfall. We can't make it to the waterfall. Got it. So it's all this, of uh, just understanding the logistics of bringing a team in and being able to hit the ground running. And this is rare. When I was with the Travel Channel, they never had that money in the budget to do that. We just showed up and hoped for the best. Here we we I know personally how important that is, and then we have the schedule, and yeah, so our scenes are padded, kind of like a flight, right? If that flight is supposed to depart, you know, JFK at nine ten, and you're supposed to, you know, they bank in the extra time, so we bank in that time for magic. So even if a scene is going to take us really an hour, if we think about it, it's two hours just so we can relax, just so I can get to know the people I'm going to be on camera with. Uh, maybe when we get there around the corner, we see this other great thing and we can shoot that and approach them. Again, we have to have a permit. We have to have approval to be there. We can't just be like, hey, let's just go shoot that. But yeah, that is sort of baked into the time that we do have some breathing room. I love it. It seems like it's really the culmination of everything you've been doing as a traveler and as a professional for the last 20 years or so. Yeah, it's true. It's great. It's great when you get to call the shots. That's Yeah. <laughs> so to take you full circle, how do you think this trip to China changed you as a person? Oh, boy, I learned so much just in enjoying where I am now, because I still don't know where I was that day. It was somewhere in between uh, the Lushua Stone Buddha and Chengdu. And we stopped off at the city that I thought, where am I? And it was kind of polluted and it was an industrial, you know, kind of a backwater of a city. But I met people who really touched my heart and I couldn't imagine being anywhere else that day. So I, I feel like whenever I am in a place, I make time just to go for walks. That's that's my main travel advice to anyone is really reserve time just to do nothing and just let things happen. And maybe, maybe it's just once your entire trip, but, you know, reserve two hours. And that's what I do. I just, I get out of the tourism centers and I enjoy the mundane. And so for me, enjoying the mundane has become a really important part of my process as a traveler of really uncovering something more deeper, um, more meaningful. And I think that really resonates with um, travelers today who don't want to just check things off their list. We really want, we want travel to change us in very deep ways. And I feel like this is the way we do it. Samantha, it's been such a pleasure spending this time with you. I'm so thrilled you agreed to do this. So thank you so much. And please let people know where they can find you on the internet. 
Oh, sure. So I'm samantha-brown.com and that's my website, but I'm on uh, Instagram and TikTok, new to TikTok, but I'm oh. at Travels. And so, yeah, so I'm all, I'm on all the social medias and it is me. It is truly me there posting all the stuff and, and just answering questions and that sort of thing. But it has been such a pleasure. What a nice conversation we've had. Before you go, I'd love to do a quick fire round if you're open to it. Yeah, of course. Okay. What's the one thing every person should experience in their lifetime? Oh, being out of their comfort zone. Totally out of their comfort zone. What do you never, ever travel without? Pinky balls. Wait, what's a pinky ball? (laughs) (laughs) This wasn't so lightning, was it? Um, Pinky balls are these hard rubber balls you get in a toy store, and they say pinky across them, and they're wonderful for massages. So I have them in my, I've carried them in my luggage for 20 years, and after a long red-eye flight, I put them on the ground on my hotel floor, and I put my back on them, push up with my knees, and I roll them down my back and down my legs. I stand on them to work out my arches, and I feel like I've gotten like a $100 massage and they're $2.50 a piece. So pinky balls. That is a pro tip for sure. (laughs) If you could teleport anywhere just for the day, where would you go and what would you do? Oh, I would go to Santa Fe, which is one of my favorite destinations, just to hike a trail called the Aspen Tree uh, Trail. And it's a phenomenal hike, just about a mile outside, uh, maybe six miles, sorry, outside of the city center, but it is glorious. Oh, I haven't been on that one. What's a lesser visited place that you would recommend to other travelers? Baltimore, Maryland. I always love B-side cities. So like records, there's an A-side and a B-side. And if the A-side was Washington, D.C., there's the B-side and that's Baltimore. And Baltimore is one of the, you know, the original colonies and it has amazing uh, colonial history, but it's also got a very vibrant community now a lot of art artists, a lot of do-it-yourselfers. I just love its kind of grit. And uh, it's just a really, it's a city that never gets any sort of travel credit, but should. I know you have your own line of luggage. So what is your top packing tip? My top, gosh, I have so many. (laughs) (laughs) My top packing tip is um, I will save all of my old sneakers, like shoes I will not donate. They're so past their prime because I love to get in jogs and walks when I travel. I will pack those old sneakers. I'll get to my destination. I'll use them and then I will throw them into the trash and it, it uh, puts more room in my luggage for things to come back on my travel. So I don't do, I can't do that all the time. I don't have that many pairs of sneakers, but you know, a lot of people, you know, just if you have older things and it's, they're not gently worn, you wouldn't want to donate them because the donating them, of course, is really important. But um, yeah, so that's what old sneakers. What is something you've been surprised to learn about yourself through traveling? Oh, that I'm a really personable person. I didn't know that. I I never wanted to talk to anybody. I just wanted to be the observer. I I didn't. uh, But then all of a sudden, I'm like, no, I I, want to be in there. I want to be communicating. I want to be making mistakes, trying to talk to people. And I found out that I was really good at it. So that's a, a huge thing that I've learned about myself. What's a recommendation for a book, show, or podcast to stay entertained on a long journey? Oh, gosh. Um, I love a few podcasts. I love On Being with Kristen Tippett. She's phenomenal, and it's about really deep stuff about life and the meaning of life and talking to different people, spiritual, different faiths and spiritualities and, and really learning about life. History, I love history, especially American history, which I was terrible at in school. 
But um, my friend Don Wildman has a show called American History Hit, and it's fascinating. So that's a great one. And then I'm trying to think of a, a book. Oh, gosh, I'm terrible at reading books. I, I fall asleep and I watch other people's movies on flights. Do you do that? I, I can't watch movies on a flight. You I watch can't. over, like you watch someone else's screen? Yes, I'll watch <laughs> other people's screens. And and I'll just get totally enraptured and to the point where I will go back and then Google the movie to see how it ended or what was going on. But I get totally caught up in other people's other people's movies. So that's so funny. <laughs> Weird. Yeah. And finally, where is next on your bucket list? Well, I'm going to Jerusalem for the first time. So I'm very excited about that. Uh, never been. I'm not religious. So I feel like I'm an open book of just enjoying people for who they are. And uh, just to be in a place that is the beginning of so much, really, really um, overwhelmed and humbled by going to that destination. Is that for work or for fun? Yeah, it is. It's for an episode, Place to Love. Yeah. Oh, that would be amazing. Yeah. Thank you so much again. It's been amazing to speak to you. Thank you for listening to this week's episode. I hope you liked it. We'll be back in two weeks time with more inspiring travel stories for your ears. In the meantime, you can learn more about us by visiting fulltimetravel.co or following us on Instagram at full underscore time underscore travel. If you have a story you want to share on the trip that changed me, drop us a line. And please be sure to rate, review and follow so we can keep this adventure going.